Section 24 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4 by James Boswell, Section 24. Mr. Walker, the celebrated master of elocution, came in, and then we went upstairs into the study. Footnote. Miss Burney this year mentions meeting Mr. Walker, the lecturer. Though modest in science, he is vulgar in conversation. End of footnote. I asked him if he had taught many clergymen. Johnson. I hope not. Walker. I have taught only one, and he is the best reader I ever heard, not by my teaching, but by his own natural talents. Johnson. Were he the best reader in the world, I would not have it told that he was taught. Here was one of his peculiar prejudices. Could it be any disadvantage to the clergyman to have it known that he was taught an easy and graceful delivery? Boswell. Will you not allow, sir, that a man may be taught to read well? Johnson. Why, sir, so far as to read better than he might do without being taught, yes. Formerly it was supposed that there was no difference in reading, but that one read as well as another. Boswell. It is wonderful to see old Sheridan as enthusiastic about oratory as ever. Footnote. Old Mr. Sheridan was twelve years younger than Johnson. End of footnote. Walker. His enthusiasm as to what oratory will do may be too great, but he reads well. Johnson. He reads well, but he reads low. And you know it is much easier to read low than to read high, for when you read high you are much more limited. Your loudest note can be but one, and so the variety is less in proportion to the loudness. Now some people have occasion to speak to an extensive audience, and must speak loud to be heard. Walker, the art is to read strong though low. Talking of the origin of language, Johnson, it must have come by inspiration. A thousand, nay, a million of children could not invent a language. While the organs are pliable, there is not understanding enough to form a language. By the time that there is understanding enough, the organs are become stiff. We know that after a certain age we cannot learn to pronounce a new language. No foreigner who comes to England when advanced in life ever pronounces English tolerably well. At least such instances are very rare. When I maintain that language must have come by inspiration, I do not mean that inspiration is required for rhetoric and all the beauties of language. For when once man has language, 
we can conceive that he may gradually form modifications of it i mean only that inspiration seems to me to be necessary to give man the faculty of speech to inform him that he may have speech which i think he could no more find out without inspiration than cows or hogs would think of such a faculty walker do you think sir that there are any perfect synonyms in any language johnson originally there were not but by using words negligently or in poetry one word comes to be confounded with another he talked of dr dodd a friend of mine said he came to me and told me that a lady wished to have dr dodd's picture in a bracelet and asked me for a motto i said i could think of no better than carat lex i was very willing to have him pardoned that is to have the sentence changed to transportation but when he was once hanged i did not wish he should be made a saint mrs burney wife of his friend dr burney came in and he seemed to be entertained with her conversation garrick's funeral was talked of as extravagantly expensive johnson from his dislike to exaggeration would not allow that it was distinguished by any extraordinary pomp were there not six horses to each coach said mrs burney johnson madam there were no more six horses than six phoenixes footnote a more magnificent funeral was never seen in london wrote murphy horace walpole wrote on the day of the funeral i do think the pomp of garrick's funeral perfectly ridiculous it is confounding the immense space between pleasing talents and national services he added at lord chatham's interment there were not half the noble coaches that attended garrick's in his journal of the reign of george the third he says the court was delighted to see a more noble and splendid appearance at the interment of a comedian than had waited on the remains of the great earl of chatham bishop horne has some lines on this grand parade of woe which begin through weeping london's crowded streets as garrick's funeral passed contending wits and nobles strove who should forsake him last not so the world behaved to him who came that world to save by solitary joseph borne unheeded to his grave johnson wrote on april thirtieth seventeen eighty two poor garrick's funeral expenses are yet unpaid though the undertaker is broken garrick was buried on february the first seventeen seventy nine and had left his widow a large fortune chatham died in may seventeen seventy eight End of footnote. mrs burney wondered that some very beautiful new buildings should be erected in moorfields 
in so shocking a situation as between bedlam and st luke's hospital and said she could not live there johnson nay madam you see nothing there to hurt you you no more think of madness by having windows that look to bedlam than you think of death by having windows that look to a churchyard mrs burney we may look to a churchyard sir for it is right that we should be kept in mind of death johnson nay madam if you go to that it is right that we should be kept in mind of madness which is occasioned by too much indulgence of imagination i think a very moral use may be made of these new buildings i would have those who have heated imaginations live there and take warning mrs burney but sir many of the poor people that are mad have become so from disease or from distressing events it is therefore not their fault but their misfortune and therefore to think of them is a melancholy consideration time passed on in conversation till it was too late for the service of the church at three o'clock i took a walk and left him alone for some time then returned and we had coffee and conversation again by ourselves i stated the character of a noble friend of mine as a curious case for his opinion he is the most inexplicable man to me that i ever knew can you explain him sir he is i really believe noble-minded generous and princely but his most intimate friends may be separated from him for years without his ever asking a question concerning them he will meet them with a formality a coldness a stately indifference but when they come close to him and fairly engage him in conversation they find him as easy pleasant and kind as they could wish one then supposes that what is so agreeable will soon be renewed but stay away from him for half a year and he will neither call on you nor send to inquire about you johnson why sir i cannot ascertain his character exactly as i do not know him but i should not like to have such a man for my friend he may love study and wish not to be interrupted by his friends amici fures temporis he may be a frivolous man and be so much occupied with petty pursuits that he may not want friends or he may have a notion that there is a dignity in appearing indifferent while in fact he may not be more indifferent at his heart than another we went to evening prayers at st clement's at seven and then parted on sunday april the twentieth being easter day after attending solemn service at st paul's i came to dr johnson and found mr lowe the painter sitting with him mr lowe mentioned the great number of new buildings of late in london yet that dr johnson had observed that the numbers of inhabitants was not increased johnson why sir the bills of mortality prove that no more people die now than formerly so it is plain no more live 
the register of births proves nothing for not one-tenth of the people of london are born there boswell i believe sir a great many of the children born in london die early johnson why yes sir boswell but those who do live are as stout and strong as any dr price says they must be naturally stronger to get through johnson that is system sir a great traveller observes that it is said that there are no weak or deformed people among the indians but he with much sagacity assigns the reason of this which is that the hardship of their life as hunters and fishers does not allow weak or diseased children to grow up now had i been an indian i must have died early my eyes would not have served me to get food i indeed now could fish give me english tackle but had i been an indian i must have starved or they would have knocked me on the head when they saw i could do nothing Boswell, perhaps they would have taken care of you we are told they are fond of oratory you would have talked to them johnson nay sir i should not have lived long enough to be fit to talk i should have been dead before i was ten years old depend upon it sir a savage when he is hungry will not carry about with him a looby of nine years old who cannot help himself they have no affection sir boswell i believe natural affection of which we hear so much is very small johnson sir natural affection is nothing but affection from principle and established duty is sometimes wonderfully strong lo a hen sir will feed her chickens in preference to herself johnson but we don't know that the hen is hungry let the hen be fairly hungry and i'll warrant she'll peck the corn herself a cock i believe will feed hens instead of himself but we don't know that the cock is hungry boswell and that sir is not from affection but gallantry but some of the indians have affection johnson sir that they help some of their children is plain for some of them live which they could not do without being helped i dined with him the company were mrs williams mrs desmoulins and mr lowe he seemed not to be well talked little grew drowsy soon after dinner and retired upon which i went away having next day gone to mr burke's seat in the country from whence i was recalled by an express that a near relation of mine had killed his antagonist in a duel and was himself dangerously wounded i saw little of dr johnson till monday april the twenty eighth when i spent a considerable part of the day with him and introduced the subject which then chiefly occupied my mind Footnote this duel was fought on april the twenty first between mr riddell of the horse grenadiers and mr cunningham of the scots greys 
Riddell had the first fire and shot Cunningham through the breast. After a pause of two minutes, Cunningham returned the fire and gave Riddell a wound of which he died next day. Boswell's grandfather's grandmother was a Miss Cunningham. I do not know that there was any nearer connection. In Scotland, I suppose, so much kindred as this makes two men near relations. End of footnote. Johnson, I do not see, sir, that fighting is absolutely forbidden in scripture. I see revenge forbidden, but not self-defence. Boswell, the Quakers say it is, unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer him also the other. Footnote, unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. Had Miss Burney thought of this text, she might have quoted it with effect against Johnson, who, criticising her Evelina, said, You write Scotch. You say, the one. My dear, that's not English. Never use that phrase again. End of footnote. Johnson. But stay, sir. The text is meant only to have the effect of moderating passion. It is plain that we are not to take it in a literal sense we see this from the context where there are other recommendations which i warrant you the quaker will not take literally as for instance from him that would borrow of thee turn thou not away let a man whose credit is bad come to a quaker and say well sir lend me a hundred pounds you'll find him as unwilling as any other man no, sir, a man may shoot the man who invades his character, as he may shoot him who attempts to break into his house. Footnote. I think it necessary to caution my readers against concluding that in this or any other conversation of Dr. Johnson, they have his serious and deliberate opinion on the subject of duelling, in my journal of a tour to the hebrides it appears that he made this frank confession nobody at times talks more laxly than i do and in square brackets september the nineteenth seventeen seventy three he fairly owned he could not explain the rationality of duelling we may therefore infer that he could not think that justifiable which seems so inconsistent with the spirit of the gospel at the same time it must be confessed that from the prevalent notions of honour a gentleman who receives a challenge is reduced to a dreadful alternative a remarkable instance of this is furnished by a clause in the will of the late colonel thomas of the guards written the night before he fell in a duel September the 3rd, 1783. In the first place, I commit my soul to Almighty God in hopes of his mercy and pardon for the irreligious step I now, in compliance with the unwarrantable customs of this wicked world, put myself under the necessity of taking. Boswell. End of footnote. So, in 1745, my friend Tom Cumming, the Quaker, said, 
he would not fight but he would drive an ammunition cart and we know that the quakers have sent flannel waistcoats to our soldiers to enable them to fight better Footnote. dr franklin says that when the assembly at philadelphia the majority of which were quakers was asked by new england to supply powder for some garrison they would not grant money to buy powder because that was an ingredient of war but they voted an aid of three thousand pounds to be appropriated for the purchase of bread flour wheat or other grain the governor interpreted other grain as gunpowder without any objection ever being raised End of footnote. Boswell. when a man is the aggressor and by ill usage forces on a duel in which he is killed have we not little ground to hope that he has gone into a state of happiness johnson so we are not to judge determinately of the state in which a man leaves this life he may in a moment have repented effectually and it is possible may have been accepted by god there is in camden's remains an epitaph upon a very wicked man who was killed by a fall from his horse in which he is supposed to say between the stirrup and the ground i mercy us i mercy found Footnote. a gentleman falling off his horse break his neck which sudden hap gave occasion of much speech of his former life and some in this judging world judged the worst in which respect a good friend made this good epitaph remembering that of st augustine misericordia domini interpontem et fontem my friend judge not me thou seest i judge not thee betwixt the stirrup and the ground mercy i asked mercy i found End of footnote. boswell is not the expression in the burial service in the sure and certain hope of a blessed resurrection too strong to be used indiscriminately and indeed sometimes when those over whose bodies it is said have been notoriously profane johnson it is a sure and certain hope sir not belief i did not insist further but cannot help thinking that less positive words would be more proper footnote upon this objection the reverend mr ralph churton fellow of brazennose college oxford has favoured me with the following satisfactory observation the passage in the burial service does not mean the resurrection of the person interred but the general resurrection it is in sure and certain hope of the resurrection not his resurrection where the deceased is really spoken of the expression is very different as our hope is this our brother doth in square brackets rest in christ 
a mode of speech consistent with everything but absolute certainty that the person departed does not rest in christ which no one can be assured of without immediate revelation from heaven in the first of these places also eternal life does not necessarily mean eternity of bliss but merely the eternity of the state whether in happiness or in misery to ensue upon the resurrection which is probably the sense of the life everlasting in the apostles creed see wheatley and bennett on the common prayer Bustle. end of footnote talking of a man who was grown very fat so as to be incommoded with corpulency he said he eats too much sir boswell i don't know sir you will see one man fat who eats moderately and another lean who eats a great deal johnson nay sir whatever may be the quantity that a man eats it is plain that if he is too fat he has eaten more than he should have done one man may have a digestion that consumes food better than common but it is certain that solidity is increased by putting something to it boswell but may not solid swell and be distended johnson yes sir they may swell and be distended but that is not fat we talked of the accusation against a gentleman for supposed delinquencies in india footnote six days earlier the lord advocate dundas had brought in a bill for the regulation of the government of india hastings he said should be recalled his place should be filled by a person of independent fortune who had not for object the repairing of his estate in india that had long been the nursery of ruined and decayed fortunes johnson wrote to dr taylor on november the twenty second of this year i believe corruption and oppression are in india at an enormous height but it has never appeared that they were promoted by the directors who i believe see themselves defrauded while the country is plundered but the distance puts their officers out of reach End of footnote. johnson what foundation there is for accusation i know not but they will not get at him where bad actions are committed at so great a distance a delinquent can obscure the evidence till the scent becomes cold there is a cloud between which cannot be penetrated therefore all distant power is bad i am clear that the best plan for the government of india is a despotic governor for if he be a good man it is evidently the best government and supposing him to be a bad man it is better to have one plunderer than many a governor whose power is checked lets others plunder that he himself may be allowed to plunder but if despotic he sees that the more he lets others plunder the less there will be for himself so he restrains them 
and though he himself plunders the country is a gainer compared with being plundered by numbers i mentioned the very liberal payment which had been received for reviewing and as evidence of this that it had been proved in a trial that dr chevier had received six guineas a sheet for that kind of literary labour johnson so he might get six guineas for a particular sheet but not communibus sheetibus footnote stockdale says that in seventeen seventy the payment to writers in the critical review was two guineas a sheet but that some of the writers in the monthly review received four guineas a sheet as these reviews were octavos each sheet contained sixteen pages lord jeffreys says that the writers in the edinburgh review were at first paid ten guineas a sheet not long after the minimum was raised to sixteen guineas at which it remained during my reign though two-thirds of the articles were paid much higher averaging i should think from twenty to twenty-five guineas a sheet on the whole number End of footnote. boswell pray sir by a sheet of review is it meant that it shall be all of the writer's own composition or are extracts made from the book reviewed deducted johnson no sir it is a sheet no matter of what boswell i think that is not reasonable johnson yes sir it is a man will more easily write a sheet all his own than read an octavo volume to get extracts to one of johnson's wonderful fertility of mind i believe writing was really easier than reading and extracting but with ordinary men the case is very different a great deal indeed will depend upon the care and judgment with which the extracts are made i can suppose the operation to be tedious and difficult but in many instances we must observe crude morsels cut out of books as if at random and when a large extract is made from one place it surely may be done with very little trouble one however i must acknowledge might be led from the practice of reviewers to suppose that they take a pleasure in original writing for we often find that instead of giving an accurate account of what has been done by the author whose work they are reviewing which is surely the proper business of a literary journal they produce some plausible and ingenious conceits of their own upon the topics which have been discussed upon being told that old mr sheridan indignant at the neglect of his oratorical plans had threatened to go to america johnson i hope he will go to america boswell the americans don't want oratory johnson but we can want sheridan End of section 24.